You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The attackers are not waiting for you to get there and then saying, now we're going to see how well you did. They're going to keep coming every single day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Andrew Rubin. He is CEO and co-founder of Illumio. We're going to be talking about zero trust. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we actually have quite a bit of follow-up. Yes. Uh, Let me start off here. First thing we got here was from a listener named Cassie, and she writes in and says, I just got done listening to your January 17th, 2019 episode, Prisoners Have Nothing But Time. Right. Uh, She's she's starting from the beginning and making her way through. (laughs) As as everybody should, Dave. That's right. Thank you, Cassie. I just wanted to give you another perspective on the prison pen pal scheme. She says, I served seven years in a female prison here in Kentucky. I'm currently out and turn my life around, always trying to do the next right thing. Of course, some of the women I was in with took advantage of pen pals the same way the man in that episode did, but it also happened the other way around. Men would write to the women and try to take advantage of them. Really? Those men were usually older gentlemen who were lonely and wealthy. Mm -hmm. They would send money to the woman, and in turn, she would tell them everything about themselves. I know women who turned over control of their social media accounts to random people they wrote— They gave information on their family and friends as well. As a result, when they got out, they have to make new accounts while these people pretend to be them online. Wow. Really? She says, I've almost fallen for a scam on Facebook from the account of someone I was in prison with. Right. That's actually an an interesting vector. Mm Mm-hmm. She says, of course, I'm unsure if they got hacked this way, but it would be too easy. For example, it only takes one quick search to get an amazing amount of information about anyone in prison or even out on parole like myself. And then she includes a, a link to uh, a state corrections website. Uh, and I went and looked on there, and sure enough, there's a lot of information there. Yeah. There's a there's a photograph of the person, uh, hair color, eye color, gender, where they are. Uh, it's basically, uh, you know, a, a social engineering uh, catalog of information. Right, yeah. Um, she said, uh, Cassie goes on to write, she says, I basically just say this because it proves what you say about scammers not really caring about who you are when they find out all your info because it can be used to further any other plans of theirs like that scam I came very close to falling for. Exactly. I also want to tell you, and Joe, that since I started listening to your podcast, I've now randomized all of my passwords. Very good. Got a password manager. Excellent. And I don't click on email links. That's even better. (laughs) Just thank you very much for the show. And if you've made it all the way through this message, I hope I gave you some food for thought. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Cassie. I appreciate this perspective, you know, and maybe it's time to rethink uh, what it means to be some be a matter of public record, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, it, it, court records are public records, but should we have this level of information available to anybody online anywhere in the world? Maybe it's time to rethink that. Yeah, yeah. It, it strikes me too that 
I, I, an, um, an angle of this I had not considered is that if you are someone in prison right. and someone is trying to steal your identity, right. it's probably very difficult to monitor that. Absolutely. You have a limited uh, ability to reach out in the world and check your accounts and make sure someone isn't out there trying to use your identity for bad things. Yeah, and no so. one in prison or otherwise should should be handing over control of their social media accounts to someone they've never met, someone they don't know. If you're right. if you're if you're in that situation and you want to hand over control of your social media accounts, hand it over to a family member or a trusted friend. Mm-hmm. Somebody you know personally. Don't hand it over to some person who just started writing you letters. Yeah. Yeah. We got another email from a listener named Bob and uh, Bob says uh, Dave and Joe, I ran into the issue Dave had. He's talking about uh, the issue from last week with the uh, the uh, Google Authenticator issue that I had when I was having trouble getting into Discord. When you lost your seeds. Yes. And he says, what I do now is take a screenshot of the QR code and save the image in a password vault. I have a separate one that just stores these images. This way, if I move to a new phone or have to reset my phone for any reason, I can scan it again. Right. And I like this idea. This is some. This is actually what I do. I something very similar. Yeah. I keep it in a Veracrypt volume that I keep uh, disconnected from my computer. Mm-hmm. So if I ever need it, I can put it into a computer and uh, and take pictures of the old QR codes. Yeah. And this is also where I keep my recovery codes that I get as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. Having it in another place, good idea. And, you know, in the past, uh, similarly, there have been times along the way where I have actually printed out these QR codes, put them in a file, filed them away. and That's that's a valid solution as well. Yeah. And boy, do I wish I'd done that this time. (laughs) (laughs) But I did not. And then finally, another piece of follow-up. One of our listeners wrote in and said, Hi, guys. Love your show and listen to it every week. Awesome. Uh, This hit home for me, too, with the multi-factor authentication because I've gone through the same pains and troubles many other people have. Uh, I mostly use the Google Authenticator app, and after your show, I quickly logged into my Google account to find out how I could back up my Google Authenticator app. It turns out it's right there in your settings and security. Scroll down to your two-factor authentication and click on it. Once you get into that area, if you scroll down far enough, you'll see an area that says Show Backup Codes. Those are the codes that you reload into your Google Authenticator app should you ever run into this problem. So if you lose your phone or break it, simply forget to transfer everything. This is how you reload all those codes. I hope I've helped in some small way. Keep up the great work. I learn something new from you guys every week. Oh, we appreciate that. That's great. Uh, I followed uh, the directions here, and I have to say I was unsuccessful. Me too. Uh, <laughs> but, but you and I both don't use Google Authenticator to as our second factor for our Google accounts. We right. both use YubiKeys for that, right? Right, exactly. So they may not be there. I don't think these are codes for all of your seeds. I think these are just codes for, these are secondary codes, backup codes for getting back into your Google account. Okay. I, I may be wrong about that, but you and I can't see them. We, we don't see them at all. Yeah. Uh, however, I did look on the Google Authenticator app to see if there's some means of backing these codes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a way you can export them. I don't know what that results in. I haven't done that yet. But on my Microsoft Authenticator, Microsoft offers a very similar product. That has a button on it that says cloud backup. Right. So that you can store your uh, seeds in the cloud securely. Yeah. I don't know how Microsoft does that uh, and assures that they're that they're secure. Yeah. Um, I also don't know how you get that back if you're using an Authenticator app to access your Microsoft account. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's the thing. It's, it's codes all the way down. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, uh, we heard from some other listeners who said that, for example, a password manager like LastPass 
uh, that has its own authenticator app and 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 it backs up its codes in your LastPass account yeah. automatically. Right. So that's an option. Uh, and there are certainly plenty of these sorts of apps. It's uh, it, There's quite a marketplace out there for these authenticator apps, and they have varying degrees of functionality. So right. uh, look into them, but um, hopefully, I, I, I again, we appreciate our listener uh, sending in uh, these sort of breadcrumbs to hopefully find these things. It didn't work for me, but if it works for someone else out there who's under a slightly different uh, scenario, well, that's great. Great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, thanks to everybody for writing in. We'd love to hear from you. Our email is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Let's move on to some stories uh, this week. I'm going to kick things off for us. This actually, uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Interpol, hmm. the uh, international, uh, I don't know what you call them, law enforcement yeah, <laughs> organization. They're right? They're right. law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they sent out uh, a document. It's called Five Reason Non-Delivery Scams Work. Okay. And non-delivery scams are something that we have covered here before. Yes. Uh, That's where you are typically online and you see something that you would like to buy or you're out there shopping for something. You see an ad for something you'd like to buy and you go to buy it and you sign up and you see, oh, this is a good price for this thing that I've wanted. Right. And you go through and you buy it and you put in your information and it says, good news, it's on the way and it never shows up. And after a certain amount of time, you get suspicious and you go back to try to track down what happened and turns out you were on a scam website. It wasn't the website of the the company or the product that you thought you were going to buy. And so that's a non-delivery scam. And a lot of times they'll have a – they'll send you something that is of no value. Right. And that's so that when you dispute the credit card charge, they can uh, prolong that process by disputing your dispute. Right, right. They'll say, no, no, look, here's the, here's here's the tracking proof. number. Yeah, there's something delivered. Right. What, what's this person talking about? And all they're doing is trying to buy themselves time so that they can move the money out of the account. Right, right. So this is a, a helpful list here, uh, reminders when it comes to these sorts of things. They say, first of all, it's organized crime. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just lone wheeler dealers. These are uh, organized groups. These are professionals who are doing this, and they're doing it at scale. Right. Uh, and they're doing it internationally. Uh, They say advertising draws victims in, and as we've seen, particularly places like uh, Facebook or these folks will buy uh, these ads that appear to be from the legitimate providers of these products. Right. And they look just like the real thing. Yep. And that's one of the things about working online is that it's really easy to copy the real thing. Right. (laughs) Right. It is. You could even pull pictures, you know, images from the real website where the things are alleged to have come from. Yep. Uh, they go on and they say everything seems official. Uh, they, they, uh, the interactions with them seem on the up and up. They say uh, salespeople create relationships. Uh, so they, and this is where they start to use things like uh, social engineering. Right. They can flatter you. They can say, oh, you're my best client. They can, they can use social engineering where they say, you're so lucky this product is impossible to find right now. <laughs> and that's part of how they, they get you because if you're looking for something that's hard to find, like, I don't know, you're looking for the next PlayStation or Xbox or something like that, something right. unavailable. Or the, uh, every year there's some crazy toy that, that happens around Christmas time that becomes right. very difficult to find. Right, right. Uh, they'll lie to you. They'll say, oh, we got special permission for the shipment. Don't tell my boss. Right. And so, <laughs> so you're in on the secret. Right. Exactly. They build your trust and a sense of rapport. Uh, and then finally they disappear. Right. Uh, when the, by the time the jig is up, by the time you figure out you've sent off your money 
and that something there's nothing is coming to you. Uh, usually they're gone. The phones are cut off. The emails are are gone. The websites are shut down. And uh, one of the things they point out here that victims are often ashamed. And right. so they are reluctant to report the fraud to the police. Yeah, that's that's a real problem in 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 this topic. Yeah, uh, because all that does is enable these guys to continue their operations. Right, they count on it. Right. Yeah. So uh, a couple of tips here to pr- protect yourself from a non-delivery fraud. They say be aware of bogus websites. So, for example, making sure that the website is a .com instead of a a .org or or a .dot you know, CM or right. CAM or something that looks close but isn't quite right. Right. Uh, verify the company or individual offering the items before making any purchases. Uh, not always easy to do, but yep. good to do. Uh, check online reviews. Other customers, are they saying, hey, I haven't received anything here? Um, be wary about making a payment to a bank account located in a different country. That's a big red flag. You know, Dave, I've bought a lot of things online. Yeah. Never once have I made payment to a bank account. Yeah, mm, yeah, me neither. I've certainly purchased things where uh, it's sort of um, drop shipped from China, right? You know, and it comes over it li- like literally on a on a slow boat. Yes, you know, takes takes its time getting here. Yeah, and then uh, the other funny thing about that that I've noticed is that very often, uh, what the, the description on the package uh, for customs has nothing to do with what's actually <laughs> right. in the box. So. That's a thing. That's a completely different topic for (laughs) a completely different kind of show. Right. Uh, And then finally, they say keep your radar on high alert, especially if you're asked to pay unplanned fees. Mm. So uh, good advice here. I think some some general stuff, some good reminders, and interesting that uh, this is active enough that the folks at Interpol decided it was time to put this uh, communique out and help spread the word about it. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, you're familiar with the term catfishing. I am. Right? This is where you uh, or somebody, not you, Dave, you would never do this. No. (laughs) Only to you as a a practical joke, maybe. (laughs) This is where somebody sets up a social media presence of some kind. Uh, It can be across multiple platforms. And usually they're doing this for the purpose of some romance scam or something of that nature. Mm. But there are plenty of other reasons they've They've done it. And Proofpoint has a really amazing report that came out just last week uh, as we're recording this. Mm -hmm. And it is about an APT called TA-456 or Imperial Kitten. Okay. Since it has kitten on the end of it, you know that's um, uh, something to do with Iran. Yeah, and APT is Advanced Persistent Threat. Correct. Which is I, that's how we describe uh, nation state actors, right? Or, or their their um, nation nation state actors are very or very sophisticated criminal organizations. Right. Right. They created a profile for a person called Marcella or Marcy Flores, and uh, guess what Marcy's job is? Mm, cybersecurity professional. No, she is an aerobics instructor. Oh, now. Dave, have you ever met an unattractive aerobics instructor? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I have never seen an unattractive aerobics instructor. That's an interesting point. Right. I, you know, and I think you're right. I, I suspect that's part of the job. Right. If you're going to be an aerobics instructor and people are going to stand in the classroom and look at you for an hour or however long an aerobics class takes, right. it's probably to your advantage to be – uh, overall, a pleasing-looking person. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the the pictures they use for Marcy's profile 
mm-hmm. we're no different. This is a, a, a very beautiful woman. Yeah. And she is Oxford educated. Oh. And she comes across, I mean, it looks like the profile of somebody who is at the top of their game in the field. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. great profile from an objective standpoint. Okay. They use this profile to build relationships across personal and corporate communications platforms with mm-hmm. an employee of a small subsidiary of an aerospace contractor. Hmm. Okay? So this okay. is an intelligence operation. Hmm. And the earliest publicly available Facebook profile photo of this person was uploaded in May of 2018. Okay. So that's when they create the profile. Right. Or that's when they upload a photo to the profile. We actually don't know when they created the profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2019, a year later, that's when they friend the target of this of this operation. Okay. Okay. So that's a year later, they, they send the friend request. And then in November of 2020, this profile starts conversing with the target over, oh. these, over this platform. Okay. So now another year has passed. Then finally, in June of this year, 2021, the threat actor attempted to capitalize on the relationship by sending a targeted malware via an ongoing communication chain. Hmm. Now, Dave, I won't get into the technical details, but the technical details are in the report from Proofpoint, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to check them out. Mm-hmm. But th- this is a nasty piece of malware, hmm. and it, it, is, uh, it is targeted at this person. Specifically at this person. This was, they, they really thought this guy was of value. Hmm. I'm assuming it's a guy. Proofpoint says the profile bears strong similarities to other profiles previously used by the Iranian APTs to target intelligence uh, targets of interest and of value. And the Marcella program appeared to be friends with multiple individuals who publicly identify as defense contractor employees and who are geographically dispersed from the alleged location of this profile in Liverpool hmm. in the UK. Okay. Right? And now in, in July of 2021, Facebook announced that they had disrupted a network of uh, Facebook and Instagram personas, including this one, uh, that they attributed to uh, an Iranian-aligned attacker hmm. or actor. And the uh, and they shut down the account. So Marcella's account's gone. You can't see it anymore. Okay. Uh, but you know, it occurred to me, this is a lot of effort to go through to target one person. Mm-hmm. You look at this, they went back, it goes back to 2018 when they created this profile and started populating it. Right. And they didn't try to send the malicious attachment th- until three years later. Wow. Yeah. I mean, espionage is a long game, I suppose. It is a long game. Yeah. When you're right. dealing with a threat actor like this, you know, you have to expect the long game. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's an observation I have on on this. It's really difficult to avoid being targeted this way because if you're on LinkedIn and on Facebook, right, and I go and do a search on LinkedIn for people that work at a defense contractor, Mm -hmm. there's a picture of you there, right? Right. Chances are there's a picture of you on your Facebook profile as well. Mm. So I can reach out to you on your Facebook profile and try to befriend you on your Facebook profile, never even using your LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is where I, and I've said this before, LinkedIn is a fantastic open source intelligence tool. Right. Uh, so it's, I don't know how you protect yourself against this other than being suspicious of people that you've never met when they send you attachments. Well, that's, I mean, that, <laughs> that's the, shouldn't that be enough, Joe? Yeah, it should be. <laughs> Actually, it was enough in this case. I, I don't think that this, that this attachment, that this payload, uh, 
fired off. I think that they caught it. Yeah. Um, I think the guy may have been suspicious and said, yeah, this is, this is going on a little too long. Another thing that would make me suspicious is if out of the blue, a very attractive female aerobics instructor friended me from the UK. Oh, come on, Joe. Don't, I, uh, <laughs> I would be immediately suspicious of that. I'm like, why, why is this woman interested in me? Oh, come on, Joe. You're a big time podcast host. Well, that's I right. Mean, that's, uh, <laughs> yep. Big time podcast host. Yeah. You just, you never know. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I would say a couple times a week, uh, you know, my wife and I will be sitting on the couch and she'll hold up her phone to me and, and with a, a Facebook friend request and she'll say, do you know this person? And I'll look right. at her and I'll go, nope. She's like, all right. And, and you know, that's it. Like she, That's the end know, of it, right? Right, that's the end of it. But, but I think it's an interesting um, additional avenue for folks to get in, which is that if you're trying to come at someone who's part of a couple – Right, a married right. couple, for example, mm-hmm. um, and you can befriend the spouse. And right. The spouse is not the target, but befriend the spouse, and then, for example, if they go to friend me, and I look and they say, "Oh, well, this person's friends with my spouse. I guess, I yeah. guess they know we know who that person is." I'll all right, I'll say yes, and then right. you know I'll, we'll we'll swing back around and check later. Right. So, I mean, that's a common espionage uh, technique as well. Yes to become friends with the friends or the loved ones or whatever. So if you work in the defense industry for any country, be wary of these kind of things. Be wary of these kind of requests that come out of the blue. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Marcella Flores was was specifically created just for this one person or was she playing the field well, with the, the defense contractors? No, she, <laughs> she did have multiple defense contractor contacts before okay. her account was taken down. So, yes, huh. she was definitely playing the field. Right. She had a type. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> You say she, but it's really some some group of group of guys in Iran who right. are yeah who are running this burning the midnight oil right yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly the opposite of an aerobics instructor right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right well interesting story and of course we'll have the uh, link to that in the show notes all right Joe it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Timothy. Uh, Dave, you're going to read this one, and this is going to be challenging because just about every other letter in this, none of the letters in this email, the the physical like letters, mm-hmm. are actually the the appropriate letter. Right? They <laughs> okay. are actually they are they are from the Unicode set, and they look similar to the letters. Many of them have diacritics over them, uh, but this is obviously to get through a spam filter. But the letter is very interesting. All right. Well, it it goes like this. It says, uh, payment from your account. Greetings. I have to share bad news with you. Approximately a few months ago, I gained access to your device, which you use for internet browsing. After that, I have started tracking your internet activities. Here is the sequence of events. Some time ago, I purchased access to email accounts from hackers. Nowadays, it's quite simple to buy online. I have easily managed to log into your email account. One week later, I have already installed the Trojan virus on the operating systems of all the devices you use to access your email. It was not hard at all, since you were following the links from your inbox emails. All ingenious is simple. This software provides me with access to all your device's controllers, your microphone, video camera, and keyboard. I have downloaded all your information, data, photos, web browsing, history to my servers. I have access to all your messengers, social networks, emails, chat history, and contacts. 
My virus continuously refreshes their signatures, it is driver-based, and hence remains invisible for antivirus software. Likely, I guess by now, you understand why I have stayed undetected until this letter. While gathering information about you, I have discovered that you are a big fan of adult websites. You love visiting porn websites and watching exciting videos while enduring an enormous amount of pleasure. (laughs) Enduring pleasure. I have managed to record a number of your dirty scenes and montaged a few videos. If you have doubts, I can make a few clicks of my mouse and all your videos will be shared with your friends, colleagues, and relatives. I also have no issue at all with making them available for public access. I guess you don't want that to happen. Considering the specificity of the videos you like to watch, you perfectly know what I mean. It will cause a real catastrophe for you. Let's settle this this way. You transfer 1,602 US dollar to me in Bitcoin equivalent according to the exchange rate at the moment of funds transfer. And once the transfer is received, I will delete all this dirty stuff right away. After that, we will forget about each other. I also promise to deactivate and delete all the harmful software from your device. Trust me. Trust me. I keep my word. This is a fair deal and the price is relatively low considering that I have been checking out your profile and traffic for some time by now. If you don't know how to purchase and transfer bitcoins, you can use any modern search engine. Here is my bitcoin wallet. You have less than 48 hours from the moment you open this email. Precisely two days. Uh, excuse me. Uh, 48 hours. Precisely 48 hours is precisely two days. Not less than 48 hours. Oh. Right? Yes. Isn't that, isn't that a mathematical error on this scammer's well, part? Well, <laughs> sure, it got lost in translation. <laughs> right. All right. There are a few more things here, but I right. think, uh, I think we get the gist the of what's going on here. And uh, yes, this is uh, challenging to read. <laughs> Good. Yeah. It's like they have a different letter for everything. Right. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So this, this is obviously just another sextortion scam. Yeah. Somebody trying to uh, capitalize on somebody else's guilty conscience. Uh, there, there is no video of anybody uh, like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, they're just hoping that you'll send the Bitcoin. Now, Timothy did do, go to a uh, blockchain tracing site to check out the the address, the Bitcoin address. Ah. Nobody has sent any Bitcoin to this person, so Good. nobody's falling for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the wacky uh, letters are probably a bit of a dead giveaway, right. as well as the the broken English and, and on and on and on. Right. So... Uh, good good no one is falling for this uh, so far yes wow all right well thanks uh, to our listener for sending that in to us we do appreciate it uh we would love to hear from you you can send us your catch of the day to hacking humans at the cyberwire.com All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Rubin. He is the CEO and co-founder of a security company called Illumio. And our conversation centers on this notion of zero trust. Here's my conversation with Andrew Rubin. So first of all, let's back up one very large step and go back and acknowledge that over the last three decades, almost the entire cybersecurity model has revolved around detection and using detection to try and find and therefore stop bad things from happening. And obviously, our track record recently of relying on that as a strategy proves that it's no longer enough. 
And so I think there's a very important point there that we've had a strategy for a long time, but the news of late proves that it's no longer enough to keep us safe. I think the second thing is that we've seen a seismic shift in the outcomes when we miss. This was a story that for many years was told around data being stolen or information leaking out. And then a few weeks ago, we had lines at gas stations and we had concerns about the food supply making its way around the country. We've tipped over from this becoming a cyber incident with a cyber outcome to becoming a cyber disaster with potential physical world or physical outcomes. And so I think that that's sort of the second important piece. And I think the third piece is we've watched the response in volume and velocity ramp up enormously, highlighted probably more than anything else by the president of the United States executive order just a few weeks ago, mandating the federal government uplift to a zero trust model. And just on the heels of that, a couple of weeks later, the White House publishing a memo imploring corporate America to acknowledge the ransomware pandemic that we're currently living in and to begin to do things to combat it, including segmentation of their networks and infrastructure. So I think we're in this very interesting time where we've had a model for decades. We're watching the model fall apart. The outcomes prove that. And the question is being asked rightfully, so what what are we going to do now? And the answers are beginning to come out, but we're very, very early in this conversation. And so what, in your estimation, do we have in terms of options moving forward here? I mean, what what sort of approaches should we be taking? Well, one of the most interesting things, and I think it speaks to the question, is let's assume there are other options. Let's assume that we change the model, build something new to supplement the old model. Let's assume that something can be done differently. The, the first question to ask is, what's getting in the way of that happening? We're not waiting for yet another breach. We've had enough of them. We're not waiting for the outcomes to get worse. Most people agree that we're already tipping between terrible and catastrophic. So the question is, why not faster? Why not now? And actually, I think the first question you have to ask is, what's stopping us from making these important changes? And I actually think that the hardest thing is changing our mindset. We have had the exact same mindset for 30 years around cybersecurity. Detect bad things, stop bad things. And we relied on it 100% all stop. The first thing we have to do is acknowledge that no matter how much detection you have, no matter how hard you try or how much money you spend, you're going to be breached. There is a reason why zero trust is defined at its core as assuming breach not because people are fatalistic or they're pessimistic about the outcomes, they're realistic about the outcomes. The attackers have the largest attack surface in the history of humankind in cyberspace. They have the fastest ability to go after that attack surface. And as a result of that, I think that when we accept that breach is now part of life, by starting with that acknowledgement, we can then ask the question, what can we do differently? And I do think the answer to that question is becoming, by standard practice, adopting a zero-trust mindset. And then the next question after that has to be, now, what do I do about that? What, What security control do I put in place? What product do I buy? What vendors do I align with? But I think the first thing is acknowledging that we need a different strategy, changing the mindset. The second thing is figuring out what that new mindset is or what we're going to add, and that's zero trust. 
And then you get to the tactical and implementation question of what do I do about it? We just have to go really quickly because unfortunately, the attackers are not waiting around for us to get this right. They are making us think about this and push harder and go faster. And if we don't, they're going to keep winning and they're going to win more often. What are your recommendations then for for organizations in terms of, you know, turning the various dials for the different types of security that they implement? I mean, I, I, I is it safe to say that um, it's it's premature to, for example, jettison uh, detection altogether? But if we're going to shift some of our spending, how does each organization go about calibrating how they set those priorities? So it's a fantastic question, and I think that there's two very important points that come out of it. None of this is about throwing away everything that we've been doing or we're doing today. In other words, exactly as you asked, nobody would say turn off all your detection because it doesn't work. It's, It's how well it works or does it work perfectly, and we all know the answer to that second part is no. So we see a lot of value in trying to detect and obviously block and stop bad things. But even if you're right 99.99999% of the time, unfortunately, that is not perfect. And when you miss, the immediate question you should be asking is, now that I've missed, is this an incident or is it going to be a catastrophic breach? And the differential between those two things, you have to have an answer for how you're going to prevent it from becoming catastrophic. So this is about not throwing away the model. It's about adding to the model. It's about recognizing there is a new problem to solve. And so I'll tell you the two things that I honestly believe are coming out of all this conversation that we're having right now. Number one, there is a real acknowledgement that our existing model alone is not enough. I think that's an incredibly healthy thing. The outcomes are happening more often, meaning the breaches. They seem to be getting worse, and they're happening to more and more organizations every day. That should be enough evidence that we need to be asking the question quickly, what else do we need to be doing? But that leads to the second part, which is there's an old expression about the enemy of a good plan is a perfect plan. Mm. Acting now and moving us into a zero trust position, even if it's not all the way there, is better than spending the next three years debating about what the perfect zero trust model might be. And one of the things that we're finding in conversations with all of our prospects and all of our customers is that segmentation in of itself is not zero trust. You don't just segment your network and automatically become zero trust, but it is a core pillar and a foundational element of a zero trust strategy. And so for our customers, we talk to them aggressively about make progress, go quickly, Take some of the easy things and segment them right now. In other words, do something today to reduce your risk tomorrow. You can then work more tomorrow on reducing your risk further, but don't spend a lot of time doing nothing but planning in hopes of getting to a perfect new model. The attackers are not waiting for you to get there and then saying, now we're going to see how well you did. They're going to keep coming every single day. I'm I'm curious if if you have insights on what an effective approach is in terms of 
um, reaching out to folks to try to convince them to adjust their mindset. You know, the, there's that joke about how, you know, nobody likes change. I mean, is, is there a, a way to come at this, a, a diplomatic process that, that doesn't lead to people just sort of throwing up walls, uh, you know, and, and saying, hold on there, you know, I'm, I'm, you're, you're going too fast for me here. I think it's a critically important question because you're actually highlighting something that in cyber, certainly, but I think it's true across many facets of change. We traditionally don't embrace change as people. And especially if we have an operating model that we're comfortable in and that we've been using for a long time, it's even harder to think about doing it differently. I, I think some of the forcing functions are when you have these catastrophic breaches and you read about them or, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they happen to you or your organization. That obviously forces you out of your comfort zone. But I do think there is a diplomatic, to use your word, a diplomatic way to get people a little more comfortable, which is prove to them that the technology that you're bringing them and the change in the operating model required to use it is actually not an enormous change and not a scary change. So in other words, show up with a playbook, not just a piece of software. Explain how that playbook could be used to segment in a day or an hour or a week and not require a three-year project to get to the first outcome. And so one of the things that we focus on very heavily at Illumio is working with our customers to say, there may be a longer horizon on your zero trust journey. But we want you to immediately start reducing risk with quick and easy wins in segmentation that could be delivered in hours or days or weeks to prove two things. One, risk really can be reduced quickly and easily. And two, that you can do it and use that as a way to build confidence to continue further down the journey. And I think that the word diplomatic, as you used in your question, is exactly right. You can't just walk in and say, this is broken and we need you to rethink everything and we need you to do it in one day. It's difficult enough to do this work even when you're committed to it. So when you make somebody very scared or very uncomfortable of making this change, it gets even harder. We want to make it easy and comfortable. We want to give you quick wins quickly so that you actually build confidence that, yes, this is the first time in decades I'm changing my security model. But number one, I have to do it. Number two, the attackers are not waiting around for me to do it. And number three, it's possible. And it's actually not even not scary. It's actually doable and it's doable comfortably. All right, Joe, what do you think? Andrew makes a very good point that the strategy of detection alone is insufficient. Mm. There are some things we're just not detecting, Dave. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. And by the time we do detect them, it's too late. Yeah. Uh, I like what Andrew says about zero trust and assuming a breach. It's not because we are fatalistic or not because we are pessimistic. It's because we are realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is one of the things I like to say when people say to me that I'm I'm being too pessimistic. I, I say I, I'm actually not being pessimistic. I'm being realistic. I'm actually optimistic about, the, about our ability to get around this. Mm. He throws out a number here, 99.9999% of the time. Mm-hmm. Five nines is what he said. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people see that and think it's sufficient. Uh, the problem is we tend to think of things being nice and evenly distributed, and we've achieved Six Sigma, right? Like, mm. But attackers don't attack that way. They don't think this way. Uh, and they are not Gaussian in their, in their nature. In other words, their distribution isn't normal. 
Right, it's not evenly spread out. Exactly, it's all going out towards one end. And if there is a way, they're going to find it at some point, even if it takes them 10 million attempts, right? Which is what this number represents, one out of 10 million. Right. Uh, And a a single attacker can quickly rack up 10 million attempts. Yeah, it doesn't take long. With automation. Right. These computers are darn fast, Joe. Yeah, they are. (laughs) And they're Uh, patient. (laughs) And and they are patient. Yeah, they just, they do exactly what you tell them. Right. Uh, Andrew is 100% correct about what he says would do something today to move closer towards zero trust mm. or or whatever you're, whatever improvement you're going to do do something today this doesn't apply just to the uh to to the cybersecurity realm i think i think this is a universal truth uh and it is particularly useful in this realm in our realm here uh too often the perfect is the enemy of the good and if your network is not segmented at all any kind of segmentation would be an improvement. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that now, do that now. Right. Uh, change is scary for a lot of people, uh, for most people, I would say. So I like his incremental approach. It's uh, you know slowly getting people to move towards a safer environment. Yeah. Remember, yeah. it's a continuum, right? The, the secur- security is a continuum. Just keep moving in the more secure direction. Yeah, a little better every day. Ex- exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Andrew Rubin from Illumio for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.